BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Time the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, September 3rd, 2021. Give you a sense of what's going on in the news today. I'll read you a story. This story did not run today, all right? Uh, but it ran in the last week or so. And the headline is ROM's Reward. ROM's Reward. And that ROM is the same old ROM Emanuel. Used to be the mayor of the city of Chicago. Yeah, heck of a job, voters of the city of Chicago on that one. Not once, but twice. All right, you ran him out of town eventually, but it took you long enough. Rom's reward and the reward, I presume. Well, let's build the suspense. What the reward is uh, with me uh, is the author of that article, a distinguished guest. And as I always do uh, with the bonus interviews, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. <laughs> I am uh, David Sirota. I'm a journalist. Uh, I, I write for the Daily Poster, which is a reader supported news outlet that uh, I started. I uh, after I worked on the Bernie Sanders campaign as Bernie Sanders speechwriter, uh, before being Bernie Sanders speechwriter, I was also an investigative journalist for Newsweek and International Business Times and a longtime friend and fan of Ben Jarofsky. God bless you for saying that, the, the <laughs> last part, David. Uh, and uh, David and I collaborated on a story once many years ago. So we've actually worked together. Yep. Uh, and David is a known troublemaker. Uh, his say Proud. Proud troublemakers. His saying, which he's way too young to know what the hell it refers to, is "Rock the boat." There was a song in the seventies before he was born called "Rock the boat." Uh, I don't know if you know that, David. Whenever you, I see your your email that you send, "Rock the boat," do you know that you're referring to your? There's a song called "Rock the boat." Did you know that? I did not. I did not know that. I didn't. I will now use every bit of power in my possession to with, refrain from singing refrain from singing that song but it's it's actually don't rock the boat baby don't tip the boat over anyway all right neither here nor there uh you and rom uh you've been going at it with rom for a while even longer than i have i think uh this goes back to the we'll get into folks the news that he broke in his uh daily poster story we'll get to that and the reward it's great investigative reporting by uh uh, David, and we'll get to that. But let's just 
let's tease folks a little bit, okay? Um, talk a little bit about your, uh, I don't know if it's relationship with Rahm Emanuel is the correct word, but your sort of like your attitude about Rahm Emanuel from the moment you first became aware of who he was and the role he played in the Democratic Party. And that would have been, oh, about 15, 16 uh, years ago or so. Well, I, I have something to confess. Um, my confession is, is that um, before I knew much about politics, when I was when I was really young, like a like a probably um, in college. That's right. It was in college when I went to Northwestern, uh, and I, it was before I ever worked for Bernie Sanders. And I I worked for Bernie Sanders twice actually. I worked for Bernie Sanders uh, about twenty two years ago, right out of college, uh, and then I worked for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. And but before I worked for Bernie Sanders, I was at Northwestern, and I was kind of like you know before I had kind of developed my own politics, I was kind of a big D Democrat and was a, relatively a fan of the of Bill Clinton because from my teenage years, it was like there had been the Reagan revolution and Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton finally ending the, the Reagan years made him kind of a, yeah, it was like the first uh, uh, president who was also a cultural figure in my lifetime. I'm 45 years old. Uh, and Rahm Emanuel had this reputation in the Clinton administration of being this like real hard-ass, uh, tough-nosed guy. And, you know, I mean, he, they, you know, they made a West Wing character out of him. And so if you didn't have a, a really well-developed political ideology back then, and I was a kid back then, it was like, oh, that, that guy must be cool. Like, I didn't know anything about him. Then I went to work for Bernie Sanders, and then I sort of realized what my politics were, got a real political education, and was like, wow, Rahm Emanuel is like, like a really bad guy like he's a really now i see how politics actually works and what he's actually all about and um you know i sort of learned a lot about him with his work all the way back on welfare reform and on you know horrible stuff on immigration and nafta an awful trade deal that did horrible things to to workers etc etc so all of that's context for when i became a reporter i started doing some reporting on uh, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, and I broke a, a bunch of stories uh, uh, about uh, Rahm Emanuel and the, and the Chicago Pension Fund, Rahm Emanuel, and how he used uh, uh, taxpayer money to essentially enrich uh, his donors. Uh, so I've been, I've been reporting, uh, doing investigative stories on Rahm Emanuel for a very long time. And I think, look, I think Rahm Emanuel in general represents a side of the Democratic Party that's almost not even conservative ideologically, it's just cynical. It's cynical about what politics is supposed to be about. And I think Rahm Emanuel sees politics as only the art of the possible if the possible includes enriching the, uh, the richest and most powerful donors who buy elections. That's Rahm's entire theory of politics, that change can only be made, change is only appropriate, uh, change is only realistic if the change doesn't uh, make rich and powerful people sacrifice anything at all. Uh, and I think th that's essentially his entire uh, political outlook. And I think, frankly, that's uh, basically the outlook of a lot of the Democratic leadership uh, uh, of the party uh, for many, many years. And I think, obviously, now we're living through uh, the reality of a world 
governed by that idea that that we are living in a world now of policies that were constructed to enrich and empower the already rich and the already powerful, uh, asking them never to sacrifice anything. Uh, and things like the climate crisis, things like the economic crisis, uh, things like uh, economic inequality as a whole, all of that is a result of basically what you can call Ramism. Uh, and so, uh, in theory, we are now living through these crises, and people like Ram should not really uh, be uh, around anymore in politics uh, because the crises that we're living through should be such an obvious reflection and referendum on how much damage that they've done. But instead, Ram Emanuel is now being rewarded with an ambassadorship. And I know some people are like, oh, you know, ambassadorships don't matter. And the, you know, there's giveaways, but he's being rewarded with an ambassadorship that actually means a lot. And the ambassadorship, uh, to Japan, uh, which is a really serious job, uh, a, a job that he, by the way, doesn't have many qualifications for. Uh, and it's really a sad commentary on like, you ask yourself, like, what do you have to do in the democratic party to be uh, disqualified from holding, from being given a job that you're not even qualified for. Like, what do you have to do? I mean, this is a guy, I mean, we have, you know, this is a guy and people who are listening to this know, know more about this than me. Cause you, li you live in Chicago. A lot of people live in Chicago. who are listening to this. Like, this is a guy whose mayoral administration buried the videotape of the police murder of a teenager. And a few years later, he's being rewarded with a, with a high profile job. He's not even qualified for like, what do you have to do to, to be kicked out of the club? Oh, man, that was great. That was a great riff. I, 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 I uh, was with you every step of the way. Uh, it's a minor point, which I don't think we should spend time debating, although it could easily turn into an hour debate. Uh, I actually think that the author of the textbook that Rom plays out of and the master of that textbook, who is far better at Ramism than Ram will ever be, is, of course, William Clinton, Big Bill Clinton, who is one of the biggest political con men uh, of my lifetime, David. And I say that because I was conned by Bill Clinton. Well, I absolutely. I mean, I don't disagree with that. I, I don't disagree with that. All right. So uh, neither here nor there. Ram is a poor practitioner of that. If you just watch him, he just does not exude the empathy that drips from Bill. I just watched Bill Clinton on this a tangent with a tangent. But there's a documentary about John Coltrane, great documentary. It's called uh, Chasing the Train. I hope you get to watch it sometime, maybe if you haven't already. And in the middle of it, Bill Clinton, because he used to play the saxophone, comes on. I'm like, why are you ruining John Coltrane's legacy with this? Sorry. Sorry, David. All right. Um, I also think about you and Rom on a debate. Uh, it wasn't literally a debate between uh, David and Rom, but it was a debate that played out, um, I don't know, in uh, magazines or what have you, back in, I think it was 2006. And Rom was in charge of the oversight committee uh, that was determined to win back Congress for the Democrats. Uh, and you were critiquing, very critically, I thought, and very on target, uh, the strategy that Rom was employing. Uh, in that 2006 congressional election. And I do believe that that election and that debate between you and Rom, again, literally, we're not having a debate, uh, but in the same stage, but that debate 
sort of is still very much alive in the Democratic Party today. Why don't you get into that a little bit about the two sides of that? Sure. I mean, the the debate back then was how to win House races. And Rahm Emanuel is running the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And Rahm's theory was basically, I just want to recruit uh, conservative candidates uh, for swing districts that basically try to mimic the Republicans, uh, in some ways out-Republican the Republicans, uh, which of course appeases the big donor base, uh, you know, sort of kind of corporate donors. They like that that conservative politics. Uh, and, you know, my argument was you have to elect Demo- Democrats from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, or you potentially run the risk of electing kind of fake Democrats or conservative Democrats who are trying to out-Republican the Republicans, which then makes them vulnerable uh, running for re-election uh, to real Republicans. Who, will, who, In other words, if you frame the debate as uh, the winner should be whoever is the best Republicans, typically people are going to vote for the real thing. Now, 2006 and 2008, you could get away with the ROM theory. Let's recruit the most conservative Democrats possible. You could get away with it because those were wave elections against the Bush administration. I would argue that those elections, Republicans just typically weren't going to win. If you were running for Congress uh, or president in 2006, 2008, as a Republican, you just you had a huge headwind because people were sick of the Bush administration, and rightly so. And I think that that my theory uh, bore out in the sense that in 2006, a lot of those conservative Democrats uh, won in those swing districts. They were not Democratic wing of the Democratic Party kind of Democrats. They were they were 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 almost Republican kind of Democrats. And then two and four years later, most of them were swept right out of office, and the House and Senate went to the Republicans. So I think now, if my theory had, if I had been listened to more uh, and more uh, real Democrats, if you will, had run in 2006 and 2008, and Ron, by the way, was using the party machinery in primaries to to basically have the nominees in these um, House and Senate races, or for him, the House races, have these House races be the, the, the sort of hand-picked conservative Democrats. So kind of rigged primaries, if you will, or at least thumb on the scale. So if I had been listened to, I'm not saying that my theory would have mitigated against those future losses, but it is to say that, again, if the Democratic Party is trying to compete with the Republican Party about who is the best Republican, in a typical election, if that's the choice voters are given, they're going to vote for the real thing more often than mm-hmm. not. And I think that, that that's a real problem. And I and that honestly, that debate is still happening right now. That, that conversation in the Democratic Party is still happening right now. Can Democrats who are progressive Democrats uh, win and hold seats, or do we need to try to out-Republican the Republicans. That's the conversation in the Democratic Party. Uh, and, you know, it's it's it continues. And, of course, the, the money wants the conservative candidates because the conservative candidates don't threaten the moneyed interests, uh, financial interests. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I would say that it's really hard uh, t- to prove 
that you were right. I believe you're right in that debate from 2006. Uh, everything that happened afterwards sort of supported your position. And I think uh, that was abetted by the fact that Barack Obama, we'll get into this, gets into the ROM reward, uh, re- again rewarded ROM. Again, he was rewarded well, when Barack Obama I mean, made was, him his chief of staff. Yeah. So co- talk about yeah. the decision to make Rom chief of staff because that launched his political career, his post-Obama political career. Go ahead. Right. So Rom got Rom went from a staffer to becoming an investment banker. He was a longtime government staffer. In two years, uh, as an investment banker, he makes sixteen million dollars uh, uh, working with people, uh, big. Uh, financial players who he had gotten to know in politics. I mean, there should be a, an alarm bell should go off when somebody who's worked in government their whole life uh, in less than two years makes $16 million in the financial industry in a set of deals that are uh, vaguely intertwined with government policy. You know, that should raise your eyebrows. Um, but then he goes to Congress. He's sort of this conservative force inside uh, the Democratic Party uh, while in Congress. Uh, and he then is rewarded for for reasons that really uh, that really at one level don't make sense at another level they do make sense but he was rewarded with that very powerful position in the Obama White House uh, the chief of staff in the White House I say it makes sense and doesn't make sense in this way it it, it doesn't make sense that. Barack Obama would run as the hope and change candidate, and people forget this now, but in 2008, runs a very populist campaign. It's the middle of the financial crisis, promising to get tough on Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. So on the face of it, you win an election on those terms, and then you put in a, a kind of corporate crony like Rom as your top aide. Uh, that doesn't make sense on the face of things. Now, in retrospect, in context, I would argue now it makes perfect sense that what we know from from Obama's record is, is that Obama decided that his job was to protect Wall Street rather than hold Wall Street accountable. He decided that his job on healthcare was to protect the health insurance companies and actually um, fortify them through the Affordable Care Act rather than uh, creating a public health insurance option or Medicare for all. Uh, so in a sense, uh, Obama embraced the kind of Romism that we just talked about, which is the idea that change can be made, but the only changes that should be tried are changes that uh, do not offend moneyed power. Uh, and so having Rom as the chief of staff actually uh, made complete sense. Now, it's a, it's a huge disappointment. I would argue it's a huge betrayal of the things that Obama campaigned on. But in retrospect, it makes sense. And then, of course, Rom, you know, he he almost did a repeat of what he had done. You know, he was a staffer for the Clinton administration, longtime government uh, official. Then he gets out uh, and he makes a lot of money, uh, runs for Congress. He kind of did did a repeat. He, you know, goes into the White House as a staffer, chief of staff, makes a lot of connections there, uses those financial connections to essentially buy himself the Chicago uh, mayor mayor's office. Uh, and so that's his sort of, I mean, that's his career. Uh, and then he leaves office in disgrace. Uh, he's now uh, working for, uh, uh, you know, the healthcare industry. And we can, we can talk about that. Uh, he's an investment banker. He's making a lot of money. And now he's being given another plum position uh, in government. 
Uh, and despite all of the obvious things uh, that he's done that have been, you know, horrible, he's still getting rewarded. And, and that's the thing that's like so deeply disturbing about this. It's not just like Rom, uh, him. It's it's what Rom's continued uh, 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 platform. Of course, he was an ABC News guy. He was rewarded with that. But his platform and continuing to get rewards from the Democratic Party, no matter what he does, is a real commentary on just how how insulated that club is from everything else in the world. It, it, it seems like there are no disqualifying things at all as long as you are in with moneyed power. Very well put. Um, all right, why don't we get a little specific about uh, the story that uh, you broke that immediately uh, led me to reach out to you and get you on the show. Uh, good good investigative reporting uh, by Dave Sirota. And um, it was a uh, talk about it, Rom and healthcare. Go ahead. Right, so Rom, during the 2020 campaign, uh, Rom was one of the people who used his platform uh, to berate and vilify Medicare for all. Uh, he published an op-ed uh, uh, attacking it, saying it's essentially not realistic. And, and by the way, that op-ed was timed uh, in a way where Bernie Sanders, who was campaigning on Medicare for all, was really surging in the polls. So Rom was kind of the sharp tip of the spear who uh, came out there and sort of started throwing cold water on the idea right when Joe Biden needed that to happen. And Joe Biden had said, you know, Joe Biden was in a tough position. He was saying he's not for Medicare for all. Uh, Joe Biden's got a lot of pharmaceutical money. Joe Biden has been close to the healthcare industry. So Biden was in a little bit of a, it was, it was in some trouble. And Rom starting to beat the drum saying Medicare for all is bad uh, was a huge help to Biden. Now, what wasn't disclosed then, and it's not clear when this relationship I'm about to tell you started, but very soon after that, it wasn't just that Rom has is now being rewarded for that that defense that he did of Biden. It's not just that he's being rewarded with an ambassadorship for that. It's that uh, within a year, Rom was put on the board of a company that makes its money off of the private health insurance industry, connecting people uh, who need health insurance with private health insurers. Ram was put on the board of that company and given 180,000 plus shares of stock in that company. So in other words, he went out and he attacked Medicare for all, and he was able to then cash in at a company that has a vested financial uh, interest in preventing Medicare for all from happening. And if you don't believe that's true about the that company, Go Health, having a vested interest, you don't have to believe me. You can believe the company itself. The company, in its own SEC documents, says that its profits and business model would be potentially threatened by the creation of Medicare for All. So that was Rom's trajectory. I mean, he really used his platform to vilify a specific policy and was then paid out by a company that says it has a vested interest in preventing that policy. That's, that's, uh, I'd say I was stunned, except I shouldn't be stunned by anything with Rom, but I was stunned when I read your story. I urge everybody to check it out. The daily poster, uh, it takes the deep dive on this. Uh, and the, the reason why, one of the reasons, uh, David, it, 
we had so much fun with this on my show is because one of the bits that we do all the time, uh, we don't, we can't do it today because I don't have access to the recording. Uh, but there's Ram is on the George Stephanopoulos show on channel seven or ABC, whatever they call it. George Stephanopoulos for some reason thought it was a good idea to, to pair Ram and Chris Christie, two completely disgraced politicians, uh, and to have them represent, uh, the democratic Republican party. One of the dumbest moves in the history of journalism, I might add. Anyway, so he has Ram on and Ram, uh, is, uh, extolling the virtues of our healthcare system. And he's talking about this trip he took. I'm not making this up, David. He's talking about this bike trip he took around uh, Lake Michigan. And uh, he's bragging. On one hand, he's bragging about the, how he rode 10,000 miles or whatever it was he, he rode. Uh, we have, and we play this tape of him doing this. And then on the other hand, he's, then that he says, and nobody ever talked to me about Healthcare, Medicare for all. And I'm oh laughing I'm like oh nobody wants to talk to you anyway. You're a thoroughly right. likable human being. You don't want to talk to anybody either. But the whole joke of it is he's trying to pretend as though that uh, he has this sincere belief in the system as it currently, currently exists because it's politically unfeasible unpopular for the Democrats to embrace it. And it turns out that he's a vested interest in the freaking industry. And that just yes. underscores the utter cynicism and phoniness of this guy. It's well, priceless. I mean, you know, and, 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 and let me just say, I, my guess is, is that if he actually was forced to answer a question about this, if, if you got through the nonsense that he threw at you, he, he might argue, listen, it wasn't a conflict of interest. It's an alignment of interest. I criticize Medicare for all. I don't believe in Medicare for all. Now I'm going to work for a company that doesn't that 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 has made a business model uh, sort of antithetical to the idea of Medicare for all. But the but you know the point here is I don't think he would that, say that in a million years. I'm sorry. I've been listening to Rahm Emanuel for I don't think he would ever. I mean, I don't think he would admit that. But what I'm saying, yeah. I guess, what I'm saying is, is like in some ways, it's not a conflict of interest. It's it's it, there, there's a there's a consistency to it, right? Like I'm against Medicare for all. And now I'm going to work for a company that basically uh, its entire premise uh, is essentially that that Medicare for all uh, would would hurt its business. So my only point in, in, is that the thing that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is is that Rom sees the public policy arena as inherently intertwined in his kind of personal uh, wealth building operation, right? That like attacking Medicare for all in, a, in, in his media platform is an investment in uh, what he does uh, to make money, right? I mean, it is a, it is a, it is a for-profit endeavor to vilify Medicare for all. And it's not well, and it's not well disclosed. I mean, it's not like Rom ran out. There. I mean, granted, it's on this company's website that he's on their board, but you really got to dig into those SEC documents to see when it actually happened and how much, how much sort of re money he has on the line. I mean, 180,000 shares of stock is, is uh, presumably a lot of, uh, a lot of money, uh, depending on how much that company is worth. And, and I think it's, it's, it really says something about how, what has been normalized in the Democratic Party? Because as as grotesque as this story has been, it's also like not it doesn't it, it's not anomalous in, in in politics in general 
or in the Democratic Party. I mean, the story of the revolving door in the Democratic Party is is now an age-old story. And the thing about it is, is that it's it's now arguably even more blatant than it's ever been. In 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 other words, we hear stories all the time of, you know, a congressman retires, goes to become a lobbyist. The Capitol Hill staffer uh, leaves Capitol Hill to go work for an industry that their boss was regulating. And and it it kind of used to be like a little bit looked down upon or or um something something you weren't proud of. Like now it's just it's totally out in the open and brazen. It's like people go into politics, <laughs> into democratic politics yeah. as a, as an early career investment <laughs> in making money uh, in the yeah. private sector, right? It's, it's like, it's kind of like, you, you know, people go to business school to learn business to then open up a business. It's like now people go, go into Congress or go work on Capitol Hill in order to get the experience they need to then go sell their public service to the highest corporate bidder. Like, Rahm Emanuel is the is the embodiment of it, but it's and it's gross, and he's like a kind of a cartoonish version of it. But it's like totally normalized, and and no one steps back to be like, wait a minute, this is like gross, like this is disgusting, like it's uh, you know I don't think everybody who works in politics has to be a, like a like in a you know a, a monk, uh, like take a vow of poverty or anything like that. But it's also kind of like if you go into politics. Uh, for a, a public-minded uh, set of ideas, uh, you're you're supposed to be serving the public. Instead, it's like you're getting experience to go sell out to private interests, right? Like that's and the fact that that's just like acceptable. Uh, arguably, if you read Politico, they have a whole sheet every morning. You know, I think it's called Influence or something, where it's like celebrated, like uh, congratulations to this top staffer, or this former congressperson who's now gone to work at this corporate lobbying firm. It's like something that's now it's not just like sort of frowned upon or or sort of hidden in the back. It's like it's like a thing that's celebrated, and <laughs> and you have to ask like we have really created a kind of kleptocracy where we are celebrating essentially the looting of the public sphere. Well, I have to tell you, David, you're absolutely correct. And uh, the reality is that they, the, the Democrats have paid a price for it, whether they realize it or not. It's the reason they lost to Trump in 2016, because they're viewed by so many people as frauds and hypocrites. Uh, it's he probably... If if Trump wasn't such a disgusting human being, uh, he probably would have been reelected uh, in 2020. Uh, and it may be why the Dems lose the Congress in 2022 in the Senate and then ultimately lose uh, the White House because they think they're slick. David Sirota, they think they're slick because they get away with it. But ultimately, they've turned off a lot of people. And no, so, I mean, it's like, look, when, when Donald Trump runs against the swamp. You know, with with so many things, Trump, there's like this little grain of truth in it that he then, you know, extrapolates to to sort of absurd, dishonest proportions. <laughs> but when he runs it, I mean, because like the idea, like Donald Trump railing on the swamp is yeah, like the sw a swamp railing on a swamp, right? I mean, it's like yeah. absurd. But like there is a grain there when he was running uh, the first time and he was railing on the swamp and the sort of corruption, the bipartisan, like there's a grain of truth there. Like the political class of both parties is grotesquely corrupt selling public policy to the highest bidder is now a normal celebrated part of of the political culture 
and it's disgusting and people are repulsed by it. Now, Donald Trump is equally, if not more repulsive because he's got his own version of the swamp, but he's an opportunist. And the problem for Democrats is if they, having normalized their own version of corruption, they are perpetually uh, politically vulnerable to right-wing opportunists who can point at them and say that, you know, they're not any better than the Republicans. And in fact, I'm an outside change agent who's here to rip up everything, uh, elect me. They, the, the democratic parties, uh, their own version. And by the way, the Republicans have their own version of corruption. So I'm not saying that both parties are the same and all that, but the democratic party has a version of normalized corruption that has made them perpetually vulnerable uh, to being defeated by right-wing dishonest opportunists. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, you asked a question early on, which is a great question. I wrote it down. I'm, I'm going to write a column about uh, asking that question. I'm going to steal your ideas. Maybe I'll give you credit. I don't know. I'll have to decide on <laughs> writing it. Uh, but you say, uh, what do you have to do uh, to be kicked out of the club? So, uh, great question. Well, very well phrased. And uh, so, uh, a moment of decision will be uh, in the Senate when the Senate has to vote on Rahm's uh, nomination as ambassador to Japan. And the way I see it, you have to do a lot more damage, unfortunately, than Rahm has done. As I look at it, uh, David, I see one definite no vote on the Democratic column, and that would be Bernie Sanders. I would be stunned if Bernie Sanders voted for Rahm and and profoundly disappointed uh, in Bernie, who I voted for twice uh, in primaries. Maybe Elizabeth Warren. So that's two. Uh, Do you see any other senators who would have the guts to defy the Democratic Party uh, hierarchy on this on this vote? You know, I, I haven't really thought about it in whip count terms, but I think, look, I think you could see, I mean, it, it you know, because a lot of these votes, especially on the ambassadorships, they, they, they can be kind of personal in the sense of like people, know, they all know Rom. So it's how many of them are willing to, uh, well, one, how many of them don't like him personally? That's one question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, how many of them may like him personally, but are re- like kind of disgusted by what he's done in office? That's another one. So, but I think, look, I mean, there are progressive senators like, I mean, you know, I have no inside knowledge here, but like, you know, like Jeff Merkley, you know, from Oregon, a decent progressive uh, uh, senator, like, how's he going to vote? Like, I-, I don't know. I mean, Chris Murphy from Connecticut, again, a, a decent progressive vote. I, I don't know. I- what I can say is that there's a chance, and because it's such a narrowly controlled Senate, there's a chance, we saw this with Neera Tandon, uh, who was nominated for the Office of Management and Budget, uh, who comes out of, by the way, the, the sort of the ROM part of the Democratic Party. Uh, she was uh, nominated for that job. She went through a confirmation hearing. Uh, and uh, there were a couple senators on the Democratic side who basically said they weren't going to vote for her uh, to confirm her. And they, ne- they never actually scheduled a full vote. They just they just they they withdrew the the nomination because it, it they perceived it to be a foregone conclusion that she would be voted down. So my point in saying that is, is that there's a decent chance that if Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, let's say, said, "Hey, listen, we're not voting for Ron. Like it's just not going to happen, right?" That you don't even get a floor vote on it because because the because there's only they they can't afford to lose. Uh, I think it's what one vote they could they could lose if there's 50, I guess 51 with with uh so they can they can't lose one vote. So so you may not get a full floor vote 
on Rom if one Democratic senator says they're not voting for him. Now, the other interesting thing is like, are any Republican senators going to vote for him? I mean, I kind of doubt it in the sense that the interesting thing about Rom, I guess, call it interesting, is that Rom is to my, to my mind is rightly reviled by progressives, and he is probably reviled by Republicans because he's seen as a kind of just like a like a Democratic Party partisan. Like I don't think the, I think the Republican senators don't like him and will oppose him, not even ideologically just because he has been an avatar of the democratic party. Like, you know, it's kind of like if the Republicans are the Harlem Globetrotters of evil and the Democrats (laughs) are the Washington generals who are always trying to lose the, lose the game, the Harlem Globetrotters are not going to vote to confirm a member of the, uh, of the Washington generals (laughs) to mix metaphors there. Oh my God. That's a great, I am totally stealing that one. Uh, yeah. That's I, mean, I mean, I, that's my, I've, I've said that before, which is uh, that damn. the Republicans are the Harlem Globetrotters of evil. The Democrats yeah. are the Washington generals. And part of the frustration of being in and around and reporting on politics is that you're reporting on a game that feels extremely rigged. You're like, it's like trying to be a sport, like as a reporter, it's like trying to be a sports writer, like write a serious sports writer story about a game between the Globetrotters and the Generals, where the game, you know, obviously the the game, those games were rigged, and that's yeah. how it feels uh, a lot of times in politics. Yeah, I I, uh, I could see a lot of things playing out. I could see Bernie and Elizabeth being the only two Democrats that go at some, and then Mitt Romney and Susan Collins uh, going the other way. Right. I mean, I could totally uh, see that. And totally Kamala Harris that. being the fifty-first vote, and I would then vomit. Uh, yeah, and he would become ambassador to Japan, and again. You know, like I got a lot of friends in the city of Chicago. They come on the show, David. They go, let's just let him be ambassador. Get him out of Chicago. The further away he is from Chicago, the less damage he can do to Chicago. And uh, the argument I mean, I've I made heard is, that. I, I, I've I've heard ahead. that. And my, my response to that is like, first of all, how sad is it that like becoming ambassador to one of our key allies? I mean, this is not becoming ambassador to like, you know, some very small country that doesn't that we don't have a lot of strategic interests with right they, like the ambassadorship to japan that's a real serious job and i know like everyone eye rolls that but like how sad is it that like we've just decided that our diplomatic corps is just something to be just some gift to be given away <laughs> like that's like that's really sad yeah. okay and then the second thing is is like again what kind of precedent are we setting that somebody can be mayor of the city of chicago whose administration buried the tape of a police murder of a teenager, and then like a couple years later, be like up for a Senate vote for an important ambassadorship? Like, what are we saying here? Like, what has happened to to, to like decency in the world? Like, seriously, like, like, where is rock bottom? Where is the line of like, what you can be involved in that then disqualifies you from getting yet another trophy from the democratic party. 
I, I agree with you. And it just exposes, again, the utter cynicism of politics, particularly uh, in Chicago. It, it's so many prominent Chicago politicians, Democrats, are jumping aboard already. Both senators have endorsed them, Duckworth uh, and uh, Durbin have endorsed them, mayor of the city of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot has endorsed them, which is really cynical, given that she ran against most everything that uh, he represented. So this goes to show you there really is no meaning uh, in Chicago, but you know that you were here for a little while. Uh, back in the day. Uh, all right. Uh, I um, Let's close by allowing you the opportunity to tell folks where they can sign up for your great uh, online newspaper. The, the, the guy is a real digger. He's a real legitimate lefty, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and he's not afraid to, uh, as he says, it rock the boat. He's a Bernie guy. And uh, so, David, tell folks how they can sign up uh, for uh, the Daily Poster. Sure. You just go to dailyposter.com. Uh, the first thing you'll see is subscribe. Uh, please subscribe. Uh, and when we send out our stories, if you like them, let us know. Uh, if you hate them, you can always email me and tell me that you hate me and you can't stand it. Uh, the one <laughs> thing I would ask though, is one thing that kind of bothers me. Uh, if I could just go off on a 30 second rant here, which is yeah. that, um, Having now built this from scratch, uh, a subscriber-based, reader-supported, uh, new independent media outlet, uh, one thing I've found is like people, a lot of people, don't are not used to tolerating um, dissent and disagreement. Like every article you read from us is not going to be something you 100% agree with. I mean, hopefully you're not like wildly offended on on sort of on a values level, but like. I want people to, part of the project that we're doing uh, in, in doing this reporting project is that is to trust the reader to know that you may not agree with everything that we write. Hopefully we agree on values, but even on the times we, you, we, that we don't agree, it's not a, I'm taking my ball and going home. Mm -hmm. That it's, a, it's okay to not agree with literally everything. That what we are producing is not designed only uh, or primarily to reinforce views that you already have. It's designed to A, report the facts, B, challenge uh, and hold accountable uh, cor uh, corrupt politicians, and C, to provide uh, information that is thought-provoking, that maybe you agree with a lot of times, sometimes you disagree with, and that's okay. I feel like that's my little soapbox rant about uh, how uh, kind of sick and tired I am of a media culture that has apparently uh, convinced a lot of people to think that the point of media content is simply to reinforce what you already believe or provide you with a weaponized piece of information that can be used against your political uh, opponents rather than media whose mission is to uncover the facts and hold political power accountable. We're trying to do the latter, and I hope people subscribe uh, for that reason. All right, that's uh, that's not a rant. Uh, that's a dispassionate uh, plea. Uh, and uh, <laughs> next time uh, David comes on, we're going to take the deep dive. I've been avoiding this with him. The deep dive on the Goldbergs. Believe it or not, uh, David's friend, childhood friend, created the TV show The Goldbergs. I do I do not make this stuff up. And uh, he's occasionally been a character, at least mentioned uh, in The Goldbergs. I'm a character. Uh, he's a character. <laughs> And I love the Goldbergs. So uh, next time you're on, or I don't know the next time, but at some point we're going to take a deep dive on the Goldbergs. How about that, David? Absolutely. Happy to do it. All right. Uh, very good. David, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.
One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.